This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today I have a very special guest, and I really mean it. We have a very special guest, Ed Hyman. He is the founder of ISI, chairman of Evercore ISI, um, a super highly regarded economic research firm. Let me let me share a statistic with you, which is impossible. This is an impossible data point. So every year, the uh, uh, the institutional investor puts out their survey of top strategists, uh, analysts, economists. It's a run that that literally is voted on by people who are putting money uh, to work. Big big pension funds, big institutions, big mutual funds, and these are the people they say are the most helpful. The the top-ranked folks uh, in the world of, of Wall Street research. And it's a great honor to be II-ranked number one in any given year. Our, our guest today, Ed Hyman, has been II-ranked number one for 35 consecutive years. Uh, that that's just a number that that is impossible. You know, I'm a big New York Knicks fan, and and during the um, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, uh, Anthony Mason, John Starks era, it was always Michael Jordan in the way. And, and for six of, let's call it 10 years, Jordan's Bulls, uh, along with Scottie Pippen and the rest of that cast, prevented the New York Knicks from getting either to the finals or, or winning the finals. And they came close a couple of times. Uh, 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 Charles Smith finger roll once um, uh, ended a, a season for them, a bad finger roll. But si- Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all times, you know, won six championships. And, and, and I think it was uh, six championship um, MVPs and maybe eight total uh, NBA cha- uh, MVPs. Ed Hyman, for 35 consecutive years, has been II ranked as the institutional world's top uh, economist. That's just a streak that is unimaginable. I can't, not only can I not conceptualize it, I can't ever imagine anyone finding themselves in a position to to top this this streak. And And think about how frustrating it must have been for all of the Look around Wall Street. There are some really, really good economists, some really savvy people who who have a, a fantastic um, handle uh, on on the world of of economics and what's actually happening in the economy. They have perennially been, you know, number two or worse to to Ed Hyman's uh, top rank. It, it's an astonishing um, feat. You'll find this conversation really quite quite fascinating, quite interesting. Ed's a guy who doesn't do a lot of media. He said he you know, went for about 15 years where he did no media whatsoever. Um, this is something I, I'm, I'm nothing if not tenacious and relentless. And eventually he, he succumbed to my charms and, and agreed to do uh, our podcast. And I think you'll find his approach to looking at the world uh, fascinating, not just from an economic perspective, not just how he views the world of of economics, but how he built a business, which eventually was sold for north of four hundred million dollars to Evercore. With with the upside, its potential, it's worth even more than that. But 
there's so much insight and so much wisdom uh, in, in his experience and his perspective. I found it to be an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Evercore ISI's Ed Hyman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ed Hyman. He is the founder of ISI, now the chairman of ISI Evercore. Mr. Hyman has the unique distinction of being the number one rated economist on Wall Street by institutional investor. It's their poll of of big investors for the past 35 consecutive years running. An absolutely astonishing feat. You may not have heard of him. Most of his clients are big institutions, hedge funds, pension funds, etc. But Ed is really well known on Wall Street, very influential. Let me just give a short version of your curriculum vitae. You graduate with a bachelor's in engineering from the University of Texas in 1967. Then you go on to get your MBA from uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1969. Uh, And finally, you ended up forming ISI in 1991. Is that more or less correct? Left, left the middle part out, but it's perfect. A couple of years <laughs> in the middle, we'll get to. Well, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So uh, Ed and I have been talking about him doing the show for some time, and I'm really thrilled to have him here. Most people don't know who you are because you're not really all that public-facing. You, you, you and your office face the institutional universe. Right. So I don't uh, – our clients are all inst- institutional investors, mm-hmm. and so we don't really have a retail face – and so we have a very low profile. I also noticed that most of our clients have a low profile as well. So in any event, uh, maybe I'm just not famous either. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're we famous. Pro- you're famous amongst people who manage billions and billions of dollars. So thank you. That, that's a very influential sort of fame. Let, let's talk a little bit about how you ended up on Wall Street. So you get an engineering degree. You didn't go the usual route. Most people in your role end up having a bachelor's in economics and they either get a PhD in economics or or something comparable. You took a very different route. How do you go from a bachelor's in engineering and an MBA to essentially creating the world of econometric modeling? So because I was an engineer, I knew I was mathematical Mm -hmm. and uh, MIT's business school is one of two or three of the uh, business schools that have a quantitative bent, mm-hmm. so that's what I wanted to do. And when I got there, uh, I had a, a research assistance job uh, working with uh, Ed Koo, who was a fairly well-known economist, and working on econometric models just by chance. And at MIT, they had developed the first time-sharing computer, where the data is off in one central place, mm-hmm. and you could access that data from uh, off-site spaces with a, uh, with a, com- a time-shared computer. Mm-hmm. And so I spent uh, really those two years at MIT immersed in doing econometric modeling. And then I did my uh, master's thesis uh, for a guy named Paul Kuttner, uh, who's a fairly well-known uh, both uh, Koo and Kuttner have passed away, working on forecasting commodity prices mm-hmm. with, with econometric models. And then 
later on, I ran a commodity fund uh, using econometric models to forecast pork prices, basically. So, so these issues that you approach, do you look at these as engineering problems to be solved, or are they really pure economics? Uh, I think they're they're economics, but in this case, they're uh, market economics and and business cycle economics, mm-hmm. and that's really what I think I do. At MIT, they had this first time sharing computer, and then uh, Otto Eckstein, who was a professor at Harvard, mm-hmm. started a company called Data Resources. Oh, sure. Which did econometric modeling with time sharing computer. And I was lucky enough to go to work there, and that's really how I got into this. So that, that sequence of events is how I got where I am today. So your training, and, and we're talking MIT was 69, te- University of Texas Engineering was 67. These were really the early days this, of this quantitative was, analysis, wasn't it? Well, this was this time-sharing computer was the first mm-hmm. uh, use of time-sharing computer. They also had developed the Sabre uh, airline ticketing system, oh, which sure, still exists, that. Mm-hmm. and that was, it still exists. It's a company down in Texas, and uh, that is still the sort of birthplace of time-sharing computing, which is now every, everywhere. But that's where I got started doing uh, time series analysis, studying economic data. So it was fairly natural for you to then take, because you were really one of the first people on Wall Street to say, hey, let's take this massive computing power that we're developing and apply it to modeling business cycles, modeling economics, modeling forecasting. This was not any great aha moment. It was just was obvious, just, hey, this is what these tools are here for. Right. And so I uh, I was at Data Resources, and Cyrus J. Lawrence was a client. Mm-hmm. And so I went to work for Cyrus J. Lawrence doing the uh, economic forecasting, but also building models to forecast industries like cap goods, autos, retail. And that's really how I got launched in the direction that I'm launched in now. So in the last minute um, we have, one of the things you're sort of infamous for uh, on Wall Street is despite all this computing power and despite the use of technology, you have a tendency to take a bunch of charts, mark them up with a Sharpie, mark them up by hand, and then fax that out or today scan it and send it out as a PDF where did the idea for hand marking up charts and, and tables ever come from? So we had a, a morning meeting at Cyrus J. Lawrence, and I would come in and mark up some charts and pass it out to the sales guys. And they started sending it out to the clients, and the clients liked it. So we all have a instinct when you see something, if it's been marked on by hand, your eye goes right to it. Absolutely. And so that's where it came from, and it's still a good technique. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ed Hyman. He is the chairman of Evercore ISI. Um, And I just want to, I love this quote from Peter Lynch. He's the famed manager of Fidelity's Magellan Fund. And he described you as much more practical than most economists, more interested in examining railroad car deliveries than Laffer curves. That was in his book, One Up on Wall Street. So really the question is, do you consider yourself an economist? Are you a strategist? How, how do you describe yeah. yourself? Well, first, I'm, I'm a practitioner. But you know, from my early days, uh, I was really going off in the economics area uh, at MIT, then Data Resources, and then at C.J. At Lawrence. Uh, but I view myself really as a business cycle expert. 
mm-hmm. and a market cycle uh, aficionado. So that's really what I'm trying to apply the logics of economics to. Make, makes perfect sense to me. So let, let's get into that in a little detail because over the past couple of years, especially during the financial crisis, the economics profession has come in for some some criticism. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the data you look at. You, you, early in your career, created a survey that went out to 400 different companies in trucking, retailing, home building, manufacturing. Mm. How, how did that come about? How did the idea for this regular survey of people in the real economy come about? So probably, probably 30 years ago or more, uh, there was a survey of retailers uh, that came out once a week and very widely followed. And I saw that and I thought, why don't we do that for many industries, not just retailing? So we started a retail survey, which we still have. Mm-hmm. And then we branched out and now we survey about 30 different areas and have really gone very wide afield. Uh, so, for example, as you mentioned, we survey trucking companies and ask them, how are your sales this week compared to what you expected? Same question every week to the same person. If the person's not there, it's typically the, the, the CFO, if they're not there, we use last week's reading. So there's no change in the survey due to somebody changing the mm-hmm. answer. And so we've been doing that uh, for a long time, and now we cover almost every single nook and cranny of the U.S. economy. We also survey companies that do business in China and ask them how their sales are. So what do all these surveys ultimately end up informing you about? So I have, uh, if you follow the surveys, you have an almost perfect knowledge of the U.S. economy today. They're not the least bit predictive. We're not asking, what do you think sales will be right. next week, next quarter? But you know what's happening right now I know in what's real happening terms, in real time. In real time. The surveys are for revenue. Uh, so like our, our trucking survey got very strong and part of that was price increases. They were getting rate increases. Uh, so we catch, capture both the miles driven and the, and the rates. Our airline survey was very strong, uh, and now it's come off in part because fares have been under pressure. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a nominal measure, each, hmm. each of the surveys. So one of the issues that we always run into, at least with investor surveys, is whether or not people are actually telling the truth. You have an issue with that? Are CFOs pretty honest with you about what they're doing, or do you run into a little wishful thinking here and again? The, I think we're getting the straight shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the companies that do it, uh, that participate with us, uh, do it for two reasons. One, they get to see the survey result. Mm-hmm. So if you're running uh, a trucking company and somebody will tell you every week how 12 other truckers put together uh, a consensus – uh, you can tell if you're gaining or losing uh, market share. Here, and, here's how you're doing relative to the rest of your well, industry. Well, you know what your answer was. You don't know, and you know what the overall is. So you can mm-hmm. you can get a feel for it. The second is we give them our economic research, and so there we've gotten about 300 companies to work with us on a, on a weekly basis. That that's really fascinating, and that answers the question: How did you get people to agree to do these? You've you've it's given in, them an incentive, yeah. and so because of that. Uh, I really don't think there's any incentive for them to game the system. We also do a, a survey, for example, of hedge funds. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to determine uh, whether they're really extended uh, or, de- or defensive. And 
occasionally I worry that one of the participants might put in a a real <laughs> a fake extra, number a fake number to try and make it look like people are really enthusiastic or really pessimistic and then trade against that. So he wants to influence the survey and then take the other side <laughs> right. of the trade. So I, I think about that occasionally, but so. This really isn't how traditional economics has been done in the past. Usually there's official government data and people take that and crunch numbers. You're really looking at the economy where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Yes, but it's a constant uh, job to look at what our surveys are saying and then compare it to what the government stats are saying, whether it's retail sales or GDP or housing starts. So you're always going back and forth to try and triangulate uh, the best picture. Is there a lead? Is there a lag? Do they There's, often coincide? Uh, the surveys are definitely coincident. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the government data can be lagging, and it's and it's always lagging just because it comes out a month late or mm -hmm. two weeks late. Uh, so we're always working real time, and and the government data is always with some sort of lag. Could be a week for employment or two or three weeks for re retail sales. That, that has to be tremendously valuable to your clients. It's it's valuable to our clients. It's very valuable to me. It's I think it forms my sort of whole vision of what is happening on a current basis. So that leads me to my next question. How do you assemble your economic perspectives? One of the things that you did early in your career when most of Wall Street was making monthly forecasts, you said we get data weekly. Let's do this on a weekly basis. What goes into into that process? So it's a little bit has followed the internet, uh, the frequency. You had uh, first you had mail, then you had fax, then you mm -hmm. had uh, email. And as that happened, you could go faster and faster. And also data was coming out faster. And so it's changed dramatically in the 40 years I've been doing this. And so we went uh, to weekly and then we went to daily. And so now... Every day is a complete immersion in you know what's happened, what the markets are doing, and we put out a piece every every morning, uh, and I can feel it. It's going to go. It's going to go virtual, where mm -hmm. there'll be constant, constant continuous, not uh, that far off in the distance, not that far off in the distance, and it almost is is now, but it is more or less a daily. Uh, phenomenon. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ed Hyman. He is the founder of ISI and the chairman of Evercore ISI, which is a very large research and asset management firm uh, located here in Manhattan and offices pretty much all over. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the institutional investor rankings. What what you've accomplished with that is is really unprecedented. 35 consecutive years from 1981 to 2015 and counting, you were the number one rated economist according to a poll of institutional investors. That That's Michael Jordan plus Tiger Woods plus Derek Jeter <laughs> rolled into one. Nobody has ever had a streak. Look, Bill Miller's streak was what, 15 years? That's kid stuff. This is 35 years. It's unprecedented. How on earth do you explain this? The well, f first, I think uh, Barry, I've been really lucky. Never hurts. It never hurts. So the the space that I got into uh, has been a space that has not been that competitive in terms of other uh, people, you know, other uh, economists in the in the space. So I've been I've been a little bit lucky. I've been very lucky in the places I've worked. 
uh, like C.J. Lawrence's, which is really where it happened for me. Uh, and my mission always, and our mission at Evercore's ISI is to help our clients. That's that's what I want us to do. And if and that, that comes across clearly in in the work that you guys. And put so out. everything I do uh, is aimed at trying to help our clients, and that's what they respond to. So, for example, if you have an idea, it doesn't help if they don't understand it. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about communicating the idea as well as conceiving the idea. Mm-hmm. And and then we have 40 salespeople uh, that are my megaphone and megaphone for our, our other analysts. And so that combination gives us a, a, a very loud signal in the in the community. Do, do you spend a lot of time making sure those salespeople really understand your thoughts, your thought process, and and what you're trying to communicate to the clients? So we have a terrific group of salespeople, and they are my 40 biggest accounts, mm-hmm. each one of them. And so every morning at uh, 7 o'clock, 7.15, I start meeting with them and our other 40 research teams to try and tell them what I'm thinking and other analysts do as well. And so that's what you have. If you cannot get your salesman to understand what you're saying, what you're thinking, what you're trying to get at, then the clients aren't either. And so that's that's your first line, and we do that every single morning. Every day, 7.15. 7.15. And how long does that uh, that morning conference last? It lasts till, till 8. So you're, you're, I'm up ungodly early. You have to also be up at a ridiculous hour. Right, right. So we start, uh, my team comes in at around 6.15, mm-hmm. and I start, Really, at around five, uh, watching Bloomberg mm-hmm. and getting up on the news and what's happening. Then I I read a dozen newspapers, and by six forty five, I meet with our team to launch. Uh, we we have very similar schedules. Mm-hmm. Um, only I'm not doing the meeting at seven fifteen. That that's uh, that's really significant. So. Besides yourself, who who are some of your favorite economists? Who who do you like to look at their economic work? So, the um, the person that probably had the most influence on me was Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. and he's not putting out economic work now, but um, he I I was at a a presentation he gave at MIT uh, when I was twenty three, and they had a debate with. Paul Samuelson, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with Friedman. T- two giants two of the giants world of the and, economics. And uh, so he, he had a big influence on me. Uh, and then Otto Eckstein, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, hired me right out of MIT, and he had a huge influence on me. He was a very clear thinker, uh, very hardworking, very good communicator, uh, and, and he really influenced a lot of what I think now. So those are two of the legends of economics. And what about the next generation of strategists and economists coming up? Anybody you look at in the, let's call it the under 40 set? The, so there's sort of a, a drought right there. Right. There, there was this, a time when there were all these fabulous strategists uh, like Byron Wien and Barton Biggs, uh, Steve Galbraith, Henry McVeigh. And uh, now there's some great strategists, uh, Francois Trahan, Sure. Uh, is you know, uh, worked with us and now uh, has another firm. Uh, 
and we're we have in our shop uh, Dennis DeBusher, mm-hmm. uh, who I have great hopes for. He's 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 my up and comer uh, mm-hmm. strategist. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ed Hyman. He is the number one ranked economist in the Institutional Investor Survey of large institutions and currently the chairman of Evercore ISI. Let's talk about what it was like building ISI. But before we start, I I have to read a quote here, and it reflects directly to what you said in the earlier segment. So while we were looking up a lot of the details on your background, there was a blog post by a client of yours. And this is a couple of years old, and this person writes, they are a long-term research client of Ed Hyman ISI. And here is why he is consistently the number one ranked economic researcher on Wall Street. He sticks to his core mission of providing high quality and independent research. He helps portfolio managers make sense of the world. He sorts through the reams of economic data and government surveys to provide a real-time analysis of what's happening. He provides a very high level of client service. He is independent and unconflicted. He never pushes a product. Discuss. So, as I mentioned, I view my career as being a continuum, starting with my uh, work at MIT, then I had the good fortune working for Data Resources, C.J. Lawrence, and all these were really high-quality experiences for me. And then C.J. Lawrence was bought by Deutsche Bank, and that was a, a discontinuity in what I was trying to do. And so a group of us left and started ISI. But it was really a continuation of what I had been doing. Same core team, same Same core team, except at that point, we were just macro, just economics. At C.J. Lawrence, we did everything. We did, you know, stock research and industry work as well as economic and strategy work. So we developed the idea that we we wanted to be the best at whatever we were doing. And at that point, it was not really possible to be the best at stock research because that was being done in the bulge bracket firms with banking. And you couldn't afford to hire the analysts. And they were doing it at a very high level. And so when uh, they separated banking and research, uh, that gave us an ability to hire the best analyst. The economics worked then. Mm-hmm. And then you had the financial crisis, and the banks have been under siege. And so now uh, we definitely have uh, 30 of the best fundamental, uh, fundamental analysts on the street. So that's, that's really allowed you to stay focused and every segment you go into, it, there's no dilly-dallying. It's all in or not at all. Right. And uh, so I grew up in an environment where uh, I was working with analysts and I thought on a, that gave me a bottoms-up advantage. And that's where I am now. Uh, so we have uh, this group of analysts I meet with every morning, whether it's industrials or banks or retail, uh, China, and so I feel that that collaborative approach uh, gives me a better uh, chance at helping our clients and hopefully our analysts benefit from working with our economics team. So this is an area where a lot of people have tried to build businesses and have failed. You guys have managed to succeed in a space where competitors have dropped off time and time again. What do you attribute this consistent success level when lots and lots of people who are in the same space, just aren't making it? Well, there, there really aren't many people doing what we've done. Um, so we, we've grown uh, from a group of macro products, 
you know, policy, economics, uh, technical strategy. And now we have those plus uh, 30 fundamental teams. And so there's really no one has gone quite this path. And the reason we were able to do it was because we had a lot of momentum and then we took advantage of the uh, split between banking and research, freeing up uh, analysts to work in an environment like ours, which is very research focused, very research friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, Bernstein is, is the main firm, uh, maybe Jeffries, that has the same sort of footprint that we have, and, and they're quite a bit larger than, than we are. So we're moving ahead, and now with our Evercore connection, it just makes us stronger. So Bernstein was bought by, um, was it uh, Alliance? Or uh, Alliance. Al and um, Jeffries is still independent? Jeffries is, is independent, but they have a Lucadia uh, connection. There you go. Yeah. Um, so you keep talking about your various teams. T tell us about some of your teams, who they are, how would you pull them together, how do you manage so many disparate groups? We have a strong management group, uh, and the, our first analyst was Dave Rosso in industrials. And virtually all of our analysts are number one ranked. Uh, we have uh, in the II Magazine mm -hmm. ranking, uh, our firm last year was number five. It's the first time a non-bulge bracket firm, a non-big bank firm, has been in the top five since uh, 2000, mm -hmm. and that was D DLJ. Uh, so I'm very proud of, of our guys. And every single se – I'll mention some sectors, but Please. E every single sector we do, we're the best in. Mm -hmm. uh, so Banks, Glenn Shore, he, he's the best. Number one ranked II analyst. He's not number one ranked, but he will be. But he also, because I know the industry, he is very highly regarded. Steve Sakwa does REITs, rules the space. Uh, Greg Malik does retail, number one in two spaces. Omar Saad does luxury, number one. Uh, so it goes on and on. Our healthcare team is is a killer team. Uh, so we I'm very proud of the of the guys that I have a chance to work with. So, our energy team. So what's the secret to pulling together these top guys? How do you manage to, you know, because look, you look at, we just watched um, the basketball finals. Hey, some teams have a LeBron James, but not everybody has the 1927 Yankees where everybody in the lineup yeah. can hit a, you know, a crushing home run. So again, you know, we, we had a momentum uh, then you had the separation of banking and research, which changed. So you think you're saying the regulatory shift created help. an opportunity, and and then the then the the financial crisis has been really tough on the on the bulge bracket firms, mm -hmm. and and we are uh, a research place. That's what we do. That's our passion. So it's not one of a hundred different things. Right. This is your only focus. Right. And it's possible. Uh, research started out in the '70s with uh, smaller firms like Morgan Stanley, DLJ, Goldman Sachs, C.J. Lawrence, where I worked, Mitchell Hutchins, uh, Baker Weeks, on and on, uh, Alex Brown, and they all disappeared or were absorbed into another organization bigger. And that's the way it was. I have a feeling that research uh, is happier in a smaller unit uh, where it is the focus of the unit, not part of a 100,000 or 200,000 employee firm what once research becomes part of a bigger event it's it's no longer independent it, the the whole energy changes yeah. so i don't know it's just the size might make a difference in our business uh we make money because we have to 
That's our only business. Right. In the bulge bracket firms, they often view research as a cost. As opposed to uh, something A that, profit. Gotcha. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you began in the 1970s. I would be remiss if I didn't mention or ask you, what was it like to start work in the early 70s? You began, you said, 72, yeah. right before the huge crash in 1973. What was that decade like? That had to be a really tough period for both investors and researchers. As, as hard as it is to believe, I really don't think the industry has changed that much since 1972. Really? The biggest change are, is the frequency of information and the hedge fund uh, participation industry. Uh, there are a lot more players now. It was mm -hmm. a much simpler business. I think it's much, much more difficult for investors to provide alpha, to provide mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a leg up on other people. Uh, but uh, what the sell side does today is trying to help the clients is pretty much what it did back then. And the our clients, investors, seem to be totally uh, uh, formatted to working with sell-side firms. So uh, our clients don't need uh, Mark Schoenbaum, uh, who is our uh, healthcare analyst. They don't need him to work for them necessarily, but they definitely want to be able to pick his brain. And, to, and so you have... Uh, at, at many firms, you have these experts like myself or Mark Schoenbaum or Steve Sakwa, who does REITs, uh, who are used by uh, our clients to try and improve their mosaic of information and come up with a better investment uh, result. So, so you're saying that that basic approach unchanged over the past, let's call it 40 years? Uh, the only the, thing that's changed is it's gotten more competitive because there's so many more players, and it's much more difficult, I think, than, say, when Peter Lynch was was king of right. the roost. Uh, it's, it's much more difficult to operate. So, so in the last couple of minutes we have, I have a vague recollection of the 1970s. I was still in school, but I remember that being a really tough economy. The market had gone nowhere. Interest rates had spiked. Inflation was tough. You're saying that wasn't a more challenging environment than what people are dealing with today? Well, it's... it's uh, For a researcher, well, anyway. Yeah. Well, I would say that uh, when people look at how challenging it is today, I tell them, <laughs> go back to the 70s. That was also very challenging. And so they were both the same. But uh, I would, when I've thought about it, the 70s was tougher than it is today. And that's a very big statement because today is also very difficult with Europe and China, uh, the banks under siege here, quantitative easing. It's a, it's a very complicated. But I'm not sure it's much more difficult than it was, was then. Very interesting. We've been speaking with Ed Hyman. He's the chairman of Evercore ISI. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we continue uh, chatting, letting the tape roll. Uh, be sure and check out all of our other conversations. You can find them at Bloomberg.com, Apple iTunes, and SoundCloud. See my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Podcast Extras. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and my special guest this week is Ed Hyman. He is the founder of ISI and currently chairman of Evercore ISI. Ed, thank you so much for doing this. I really, uh, yeah, my, really appreciate it's it. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
Um, I know you don't do a lot of media. You've done enough in your day, but it's something that you don't really do uh, a whole lot of lately. So I, um, I went through maybe 15 years I didn't do any. 15 years, really? Right. And early that must on, have really hurt your business. <laughs> so early on, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was on Wall Street Week more than anybody else. With Louis Rukeyser. With Louis Rukeyser. We, we had earlier uh, this year, we had Anthony Scaramucci, who just bought the rights right, to, started uh, up. To, to Wall Street Week, which was really kind of interesting. And Liz Ann Saunders, who occasionally right. guest hosted for, yes. uh, for Lou. Right. So what was it like doing uh, that show back well, that, in the day when there wasn't daily television? There wasn't any. There wasn't, was, you know, was, the media landscape was so different. There was none. And so Wall Street Week uh, was so good because it was the only show. And uh, Lou Rookheiser was a real professional, uh, terrific uh, interviewer and seer, uh, great intellect. And so that show was what everybody, everybody watched it. And everybody wanted to be on it, and I was on it because I started so young. Right. And I was. You were twenty three, right out of school, something yeah. like that. Well, maybe twenty seven or twenty eight. Okay. But uh, so I just by stint of time, I, I was on it a lot. Of and that times. ran from I want to say I guess nineteen seventies uh, to yeah. uh, somewhere two thousand and something. Two thousand and yeah. he passed away yeah. about a decade yeah, ago now. Right. More. It's really, really quite. Is it that? Is it longer than that? Yeah, That's, I think uh, so. Wow, that's amazing. So um, one of the things I didn't get to ask about, so in the early days of ISI, you were both managing assets in a separate entity and doing research. How do you juggle both of those? So I had a very strong partner who led the asset management business, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we've just sold that, that business. Uh, it didn't fit into the Evercore ISI uh, Who, who was the partner, and who would you end up selling it to? Uh, Almeta. Oh, sure. Uh, Name is familiar. Who... Is a fixed income guy, and is a firm out of South Africa that we sold it to. And you also sold ISI. Bloomberg reported last year that ISI was sold to Evacor for a number theoretically worth north of four hundred million dollars. Is that a real number, or is that a uh, just a you know a rough estimate? Yeah. So uh, Ralph Schlossstein is the business operator. He is the person that is driving Evacor, mm -hmm. and and he is the visionary for putting this together. And so we have a five-year uh, program with Evercore where our shares in ISI vest into Evercore mm -hmm. uh, in years one, two, three, four, and five, depending on performance metrics. And if we meet all of our performance metrics, uh, it'll be over $400 million. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a terrific example of capitalism. Everybody's incentivized. Everybody's incentives are lined up perfectly right. to make the thing work. Evercore wants it to work. Uh, you want it to work? I want it to work. Everybody at ISI wants it to work. Uh, and so we essentially have gone public. Uh, so now I'm part of a publicly traded company. That, that has to be deeply satisfying after so many – I mean, this was decades. I have to say it is. Uh, and, and suddenly for someone to say, look, clearly you have received accolades professionally for years and years. But – at a certain point, when someone puts a dollar figure on it and says, hey, what Ed and team have built is so valuable, here's what we, we want to pay them, that has to be like, wow, I guess we really did this the right way. And what I take the deepest pride in is that uh, the employees own half the company. Mm -hmm. And so this is a 
a great experience for all of us. Uh, and because we now are investing into Evercore stock, uh, I really want Evercore stock to go up. <laughs> so if it was a double, uh, it's it theoretically be, more. Yeah. Half the employ, half the company ISI stock was owned by employees. By, how how by, typical is that? Uh, well, the whole thing is very is very unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't and, hear fifty percent. There's a disproportionate share usually right. at the top, and then a, a little bit of a stock right. plan. But fifty percent—that that's a huge. I guess everybody is aligned at that point. Well, so the, by everybody, we have fifty partners that own on that, mm-hmm. and we have total employees of about two two fifty. Uh, but our our keep uh, after something like this, the main problem is retention, mm-hmm. and so you speak to Google, you speak to Apple, you speak to Facebook. Or micro, in a previous generation, Microsoft and Intel and Cisco, yeah. they had the same issue. At a certain point, people start to have so much money, they like, yeah. oh, why do I have to work yeah. anymore? So, uh, so we have a five a five year vesting plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have, I've, I guess almost, I have four and a half years now in front of me. Okay, well let let's hope you keep on to yeah. hold on to all your key uh, all your key people. Yeah. So you had mentioned some of your early mentors. Who else were key mentors to you? So um, these these guys at MIT were really started to change my uh, life. Ed Koo and Paul Kuttner were mm-hmm. two professors there, and then Otto Eckstein, who's such a fabulous guy, and I was so lucky to work for him. And then I went to work for Jim Moltz at C.J. Lawrence, and. He's just been a fabulous mentor for me, you know, all all through this this time, and uh, so those were the guys that really formed my 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 career. Let, let me digress about mentoring because this has been something I've thought about in the past. There was earlier in the history of Wall Street a fairly robust mentoring sort of mindset, and. One of the things I've noticed is that seems to have slipped away. You know, do do you see that same sort of mentoring approach today on the street that might have existed, let's call it twenty or thirty years ago? So, as I mentioned, it's possible that research thrives best uh, in a small or medium-sized environment, not a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand people, where mentoring becomes more difficult just by nature of size. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've been uh, growing so rapidly for the past twenty something years. I don't think we've done a good job of mentoring. Really? We've because we've just been pushing and we've been hiring the best analysts in each space. Uh, who, ever, don't, who don't necessarily need a lot of mentoring at that point. At, they they don't need mentoring that at that point. They've already been mentored. Uh, uh, Ralph Schlossstein at uh, Evercore is really passionate about. Uh, mentoring and growing talent from from within, and so we've uh, and they have had a much stronger program than we've had, and uh, so we we are now l- launching a career development committee and a program mm-hmm. specifically aimed at mentoring uh, people to give people a, a path forward. Well, well, if you can't find anybody to mentor, you can always mentor me. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> assume those responsibilities. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, the investors who influenced you. We mentioned Peter Lynch earlier on. Um, what other invents, investors have you found to be influential to your thought process, how you look at market cycles, how you look at business cycles? Okay. 
So um, Jim Moltz ran C.J. Lawrence and is a, a great investor and strategist. And so he influenced me a great deal. Uh, we also had a strategist there named Stan Salvickson, who's unfortunately passed away, but he was uh, sort of Nova on the scene while he was uh, with us, and then he went on to Merrill Lynch uh, to become their strategist and then an investor. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller has influenced me more than anybody else. Really? And um, Druckenmiller is really an interesting um, gentleman. Some of the work he's doing currently is, is quite, uh, quite fascinating. Right. And so that, that group of, uh, of players uh, who I've been fortunate enough to work with uh, have influenced me a great deal. Uh, Louis Bacon uh, is another one. Stevie Cohen is another one. Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, this, this is like the Hall of Fame you're, you're listing here. Well, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with them and uh, study how they operate. And uh, I've learned a lot from them and, and try and uh, put some of the ideas that they use to work in my own work. Bob Farrell uh, was a technician at Merrill. Sure. Farrell's and, famous 10 Laws of, uh, oh, is that right? of, of Markets. Yeah, I'll send you a copy of it. <laughs> Our mutual friend Dave Rosenberg had yeah, put yeah. out a piece with... The first time I ever saw it printed, 10 rules of uh, Bob Farrell, and um, I ended up posting it on the internet because it was not publicly available anywhere. He still puts out regular- I know. Uh, regular I read him every single week. Mm -hmm. And so he, uh, I have a uh, pretty strong technical uh, window, I, and he helped me form that. Uh, people like Lee Cooperman is uh, a real role model for me and men mentor. So Lee Cooperman was the best strategist on the street when mm -hmm. he was at Goldman Sachs. Right. He was a sell-side strategist. Before he, before he launched Omega. Right. We have him coming up uh, next month. Yeah. So he's uh, he's been a legendary. The, the, uh, your list is really... The, well, I've been lucky. <laughs> to, and, that's an amazing and I'd also, run of mentors. I'd also say uh, I've learned a lot from, from Bill, Bill Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, has I, I've always enjoyed his thought his thought process. His streak is he his streak is second only to yours. Mm -hmm. He beat the S and P five hundred fifteen consecutive years. Right. Nobody's come remotely close to it. Although I don't know who the hell is ever going to beat a thirty five year streak. <laughs> well, that, 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 and no counting, one, no one wants to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I bet people would be thrilled thrilled yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about some of. The other interests you have. There's a, a run of different committees and things are on. Tell us about the China Institute. What do you do with them? So when when we started ISI, the, the name is International International Strategy and Investments. And so uh, you know that the world is becoming much more international, much more globalized. For sure. And so that we had that focus. And I think the emerging economies – are going to play a major role in the next decade, two decades, in the way the world economy develops. And China is simply the biggest, strongest one of them. So we have a China research team. Don Strassheim uh, heads mm -hmm. that up. And uh, I have a deep interest in China. And so I'm on the board of the China Institute. And that gives me a, a little extra window into, into what's going on uh, there. Not too long ago, I spoke to you and you were either going to China or coming back. How often are you um, on that side of the world? Uh, once, once, once a year. And, and what do you do when you are in country in China? Uh, either uh, visit 
investors there or visit companies there. Huh, quite fascinating. Do you, do you find anything that you witness when you have boots on the ground? Is that different than just looking at charts and looking at data? That oh, yeah. I'm, uh, changes the perspective. Right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a, definitely a hands-on uh, observer of the condition. And so I really like traveling to places and seeing from my own, through my own eyes what's going on, talking to people who are there. Uh, and I enjoy talking to investors. I think I learn from talking to investors about what's happening. But I'm, I definitely love, I travel uh, not a huge amount. I travel about six, six, 65 days a year. That, which, that's two mo more than two months. That's a decent well, amount. But it's, for people there are that people travel, who travel two 100. weeks a month. Right, yeah, right. exactly. So, uh, but I, I feel like I'm learning uh, on those trips. I got into a debate with someone not too long ago who was insisting the U.S. is still in a recession really bearish, negative, long gold, short equities. And I asked him, when was the last time you left your trading turret? And Well, I got too much stuff going on. I go, have you been to Seattle? Have you been to Dallas? Have you been to San Francisco or Silicon Valley? You can't, you can't go through Nebraska or Iowa or South Dakota and tell me we're in a recession still. You, if you get out from behind your desk and look at what's going on in the real world, parts of the country are just booming. Now, it's not evenly distributed. I don't have to tell you. Lots of stuff are still below par. But the folks who never seem to leave their desk, I think they get, uh, we, we call it a fluorescent view of the world. And it's not very accurate, is it? Yeah, well, I'm very in tune with you on that. First, I have our company surveys, which are, uh, you're asking somebody who is running a company, how's your business? And people have, a, if they have to look it up, I'm not talking to the right person. They, right. they know it. Uh, and that uh, is better than anything in 10, 11, 12, 13. It's not quite as good as 05 and 06, but mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty good. But uh, when I travel around the U.S., uh, almost every place I go, when I talk to locals, they say it is booming. It's amazing. And, and I'm say places like New, or New Orleans or Minneapolis or Nashville uh, that you wouldn't think of right off the bat uh, as having that response uh, are pretty strong. So I think the main message here uh, is that the, the odds that the U.S. economy is in recession are very, very low. What about uh, falling into recession in the next few quarters or year? So... Uh, and I'm, I know we're not, we don't want to talk about forecasts. I said, hey, we really don't do forecasts, but... Well, in context of people who have missed this bull market and are waiting for the next collapse, what do you say to folks like that? So uh, this, isn't, uh, this isn't so much a forecast as though it's an observation about where we are in the business cycle. Mm -hmm. And so this is something you can study. And uh, in terms of where we are, we're still early in the business cycle. Say, for example, housing starts are barely over a million. Mm -hmm. The Fed hasn't started to tighten yet. Mm -hmm. Wages haven't started to accelerate yet. So these are all conditions that suggest the next recession is maybe five years out. Really? Uh, That's every, amazing. Every single one of these conditions, like wages, Fed tightening, uh, housing, all suggest that the recession is way out. So uh, that's my starting point. And you change that if conditions change. The sure. biggest thing that could change would be if inflation were to really come on strong. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I think it's picking up on the wage side, but that's about it so far. So I think we're still 
you know, if you had to have a scientific answer about when the next recession is, five years out is the best guess. Right. The yield curve is nowhere near inverted. inverted. And when we look at most of the metrics, they're continuing to creep up. They're continuing to improve. Like, I, I, I'm always scratching my head trying to figure out, is it just confirmation bias and people who are positioned wrong are rooting for something? Or I'm amazed when I talk to people who have been, you know, just so much on the wrong side of the trade this well, rally. I think, that, I think it's hard to uh, overestimate uh, the impact of 08, 09 the, the on psychology. Trauma. Right. Uh, and then, you know, there are a lot of negatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, Greece is an uncertainty, right? Uh, and China is an uncertainty, and profit margins are very high, and the uh, way that quantitative easing plays out, these are unknowable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think investors are sort of positioned for negative outcomes uh, on those, and if they were to be positive outcomes, like if or even neutral or neutral, then then the market. Uh, is probably okay, but I on the, on the economy, which is somewhat different than the market, but the, on the economy, uh, I'm sure it's okay today, and the destabilizers are inflation, mm-hmm. which we don't have now, right? Uh, Fed Fed tightening, which we don't have now. Although we could see that the theory is I'm, that that starts later yeah, this year. I'm saying, by Fed but tightening, today. I mean by uh, aggressive Fed tightening, mm-hmm. uh, and that's way off. Yeah, they're going to start, but uh, they'll go from uh, ultra easy to extremely easy. <laughs> we have to work our way up to merely easy. Is right. that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And um, so we we I asked you about the China Institute. Tell me what you do with the New York Public Library's uh, financial services. So that's just uh, participating in a speakers program. Uh, it's uh, they have about 200 people uh, at each. Uh, sessions, a breakfast session, and they get uh, some great speakers in. And uh, I find it interesting to go, and I uh, take a group of clients, uh, and it's a nice venue for seeing people that you wouldn't ordinarily see in another setting. So Warren Buffett, Bill Clinton uh, have been speakers, and it's a nice way to see uh, some ideas that you wouldn't otherwise get. Very interesting. And I know you do something similar in your own office, where you have people come in and present in your in your morning meetings as right. well, um, the leadership forum. What what do you do with that? Uh, that's not much of a. What is the leadership forum? I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, I'm sorry. That is the. It's the leadership forum. Is the public library? Oh, of the library. Right. All yeah. right. So we'll, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I saw that. Turn that into yeah. a second uh, yeah. Right. line. Yeah. So it's a leadership forum at the New York Public right. Library's right. Financial Services Advisory Committee. Right. Can't read my own typing. No, How I, about the um, the Economic Club of New York? So it's a it's a very different thing than the than the library program, but uh, they've been going since the 1800s, and um, they they get speakers, uh, 146 speakers so far, mm-hmm. and it's a great forum uh, for New York to have people come in. The last speaker was was Jack was Jack Ma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alibaba's uh, founder is a- that right? Alibaba's founder, and it's, it's just a, they have a great roster. You know, the chairman of the Fed comes on a regular basis, and so it's just a, it's a place that uh, it's a large forum. There's a thousand people. Oh, really? And so it's but uh, it's um, a big room. It's a big room. Huh, very interesting. Um, let me keep working through my list. The, by the way, these last half dozen or so questions 
uh, I'm saving are, are the same questions I ask everybody. Let me go through some of the questions that, um, wow, you answered two of them. You answered where we are in the economic cycle. You answered that you're really a hybrid between a strategist and an economist. And uh, what you, there was no eureka moment. You basically just started just kept on, on at going. MIT and, and kept going. Um, so you you hinted about QE and, and the Federal Reserve. So let's explore that a little bit. So what makes QE so unique? What makes the unwind of QE so unique? And can't the Fed just hold this? Um, fixed income paper till maturity. I think the average duration is seven years. Do they have to actually unwind QE, or can they just let it run off naturally? So they they can and will, I think, let it run off naturally uh, over the next five or six years. The paper is something like a six-year duration, so it should mature over time. The, uh, the Federal Reserve has become much more important because we have so limited... We've limited maneuvering room on fiscal policy. Right. The Congress is basically just gridlocked and doing nothing. And the budget deficit, it, it barely gets back to a balance, and then we go back into deficit. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have many degrees of freedom when it comes to fiscal policy. So as a result, we've had to operate more and more on monetary policy. And, and that's why the Fed has become a much more prominent institution uh, in our country with, you know, giving speeches all the time, different members, and they're sort of like rock stars in the system. They, they always used to give speeches. Nobody paid attention. Nobody covered it. It was just really inside baseball yeah. sort of stuff. And, and they didn't give as many speeches. They're oh, much, it's more today? More more today and a bigger forum each time they give it. Uh, in terms of QE, uh, the, uh, the overarching problem first is that it's not only QE here. It's QE in the ECB in Europe and QE in Japan. Uh, so we're going to end up with something like $12 trillion uh, in QE in a year or year, year and a half from right. now. Between all three, all, all three. three banks. And uh, so then the question is, you know, how can we unwind our QE? I think that when the Fed tightens, uh, uh, there'll be a moment of silence to see if we're still alive. Okay. And if we are, people are going to relax some. That we, we got the shot. It didn't kill us. Uh, and then they'll start to think about, well, the next tightening, the tightening after that, and, and whether they'll let the Fed's balance sheet run off and whether that creates a problem in and of itself. Uh, so we're going to go from tightening, and then as soon as one is under a belt, people are going to start looking forward at the at the next tightening, and, and it'll, it'll be step it's gonna one be, to the next to the next? And it's going to be constant uh, discussion. The Fed has indicated very strongly uh, that they will have a more uh, a responsive function to tightening as opposed to every meeting, 25 basis points. And so uh, if, if that's what happens, uh, there'll be much discussion before every meeting. Are they going to pass this meeting or tighten this meeting because they go 50? And then when you get down the road, if Fed funds are two, there might even be a notion they might even cut rates at the next meeting. Right. So that's going to be, I think that uh, having Stan Fisher, uh, the vice chairman of the Fed, mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, will be a great addition uh, to Yellen and Dudley uh, in giving the world uh, some vision about how the U.S. might unwind its balance sheet. And then if we can do it, uh, that'll give a big leg up for Europe and Japan to think about whether they can unwind their balance sheets. 
but those are, you know, three, four, five years out. So two percent is really fairly accommodative. We take it, take Fed funds rates up to two percent. That's still relatively low rates historically. Can the economy absorb a two percent funds rate? Well, first, we don't have to answer that question today. We'll we'll see day by day. Still data dependent. Data dependent, and um, it, it seems as though it should be able to. There's one point I'd like to raise here: is that we talk about the one or two percent funds rate, and we also have a four trillion dollar balance sheet, uh, or maybe it goes to three trillion. Mm-hmm. But we have a huge balance sheet, and uh, there's uh, the New York Fed in particular has done work uh, that having that big a balance sheet means that the funds rate isn't zero that it's negative. So when I walked over here, mm-hmm. I was thinking I'm in a funds rate that's minus 3%, not zero. And so how, they, how do you get to minus 3%? The, the, the New York Fed said that- Relative, it's n- real terms, not nominal terms? Is that- Oh, just that, in nominal terms, that mm-hmm. uh, 500 billion is the equivalent to cutting the funds rate 50 basis points. So it's easy to 500 billion, sure. 50 basis points. But at zero, you can't cut it 50 basis points. Right. But we've, we've now done $3 trillion in in quantitative easing. Obviously, that's 6 50s, and right. that's minus 300 basis points. So whether that's even close, I do think that there's uh, that the funds rate might be in negative territory uh, in, in a sense. And so when they start to tighten, if they get to, say, 2, and the balance sheet is, you know, has been shrunk by a trillion dollars, the funds rate could still be one and a half or something. And and that's before we start talking, hey, we're a one, one and a half percent inflation environment. Right. So zero adjusted for one percent inflation is also a negative, uh, a negative number. So the next, the next big event in this space uh, is whether or not wages, wages are accelerating. And it looks as though they, they are. So it's been it's been very public that we've seen some of the minimum wages go up. We've had the McDonald's announcement. We've had the Walmart announcement. Uh, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles all raised their minimum wage. And but depending on whose data you use, it's not an insubstantial number of people earning the minimum wage. But the bulk of Americans, the, the bulk of middle middle class America. Um, don't earn the minimum wage. They, the median income is about $53,000 or so a year. When does middle America start to see real wage gains? Now. Now. So in the past, uh, wages have accelerated when unemployment has come below five and a half. Mm-hmm. So we're right there. we're there, and these wage increases you mentioned would seem to be the smoke that would occur when you're starting to get a tighter labor market. Mm-hmm. There's an employment cost index, a government measure, that's moved from one eight to two six, mm-hmm. and then average hourly earnings, another measure, has moved from two to two point three, and this morning, the UK uh, wages came out and they're up to two point nine, mm-hmm. and their unemployment rate also is five and a half. So I think uh, when we look back at this time five years from now, we'll say. This was about when U.S. wages started to accelerate, and that's a big deal because I think a lot of the feeling we talked about earlier about the economy not doing well is because people are not getting pay increases. If the average pay is up 2%, then a lot of people didn't get a pay increase. 
They're flat with inflation. Oh, they got one. And, and their costs relative to increased health care and increased education expenses, what middle America is paying for, feels like, gee, all these things are going up and I'm staying the same. It's also psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go home and say, hey, I got a 1% pay increase. Big deal. It, it doesn't make you feel like you're a star. Right. And so I think if, if wages pick up, uh, it'll make the economy feel better. Uh, in addition to just making re- re- retail sales better. So how does that was the next question is how do how does the beginning of rising wages impact uh, the overall economy? Is it just retail sales? Can we get a a virtuous cycle where people start spending more, companies hire and do more capex and well, this all is, good things? Well, this is in my view, we have been in an evolutionary mode for six years now. Mm-hmm. You know where things change a little bit over time. Uh, the places you and I mentioned, like a Seattle, mm-hmm. their economy gets better, and you, then you can see it's getting better. And employment is now up uh, well above its prior peak. Uh, I've been watching lately employment of young people, 25 right. to 34. Okay. And that's gotten strong. It's up 3.5% now. Uh, and it's well above. It's up three, 3 million or about 10% from the low point five years ago. And so these are these are hard to overlook uh, improvements, and and that was a segment that was lagging. The millennials and that group, recent college graduates, it was bad. Did not feel right. Bad is okay. That's <laughs> no sugarcoating it. They really felt bad. They were living with their parents. Yeah. They weren't forming households. They weren't getting married. They weren't moving out of their parents' house. Is that another part of the cycle that uh, that's ahead of us? That, that that's, that's now, what we're looking at. That's so starting. that's this five year notion. Really, there are a lot of things that are ticking up here that make that a very practical, plausible decision. It's not just a random number. You're looking at all these other metrics that all have a lot of runway ahead of them. Right. The main the main metrics that give you the five years uh, are we haven't had wages inflation yet. We haven't had Fed tightening yet. Uh, We haven't had housing starts well over a million yet. And after those things happen is when you start the clock. Uh, for mm-hmm. five years. And then you say, well, what's going to drive it for five years? And the uh, employment and in the, in, in the, in the millennials could drive it. Household formation could drive it. Technology could drive it. Uh, so those are the things that could make it go for five years. And those, to me, feel like they're, they're starting to fall in place. They're, they're and, just and, and wages also will be a driver uh, if they start to accelerate. So Let's take the uh, look at the other side of it. And, and I'm on the same side of the street as you are in terms of being very negative during the, the last bubble, during 05, 07, 08, and just seeing everything start to fall apart. And I'm seeing all the things you're seeing. I see a lot of positives, but that always makes me nervous. What should we be looking at if we want to start to hedge our bets or start to get an early warning if things don't work out. What sort of data points would you suggest people pay attention to? Well, first, as I mentioned, you know, there are a lot of, of uh, significant negatives now. Like, Europe might not work. And I don't know whether the odds are one in 100 or one in a million or one in 10, but... It's a non-zero number. It's a non-zero, and, and uh, if I tell you the chance of me getting run over by a bus when I walk back to my office, is one in a hundred. If I told you that, I'd just stay here. Right. Uh, and so, you, you know, there's a, there's a risk there. 
And that will probably get resolved in the next year as to whether or not you know, the Greek exit occurs or not. China is a, is a concern. They are, they're going through three different uh, problems at once. And whether they can pull that off uh, is a concern. So let me guess what the three problems in China are. Yeah. So aside from demographics, unless you consider that yeah. a problem, um, one, their economy has been slowing, although slowing to 7 or 8 percent. is yeah. But down from 13 percent, that's a, a, yeah. a issue. Second, whether you talk to Jim Chanos or any number of different people, it certainly looks like their stock market is, if not in a bubble, well, pricey and, and extended relative to everybody else's uh, stock market. And I can't even guess what the third one is. Yeah. So um, my three problems, I also think Jim Chanos is, is, is a very bright guy, and I've learned a lot from him about China. Uh, Very but, early on, identifying problems right. there before. And he's a brilliant. Anybody guy. else saw it. So, the, in, in my view, the three problems are: first, they have corruption, mm -hmm. and that's they're trying to root that out. And that's endemic, systemic corruption throughout the whole country, right. not just pockets here or there. Second, they have the the environmental issues, which oh, are really. Well, the, the water, the air. Oh, sure. They had to shut the oh. factories for eight months before the Olympics. I haven't right. even, you kind of forget about that. <laughs> right. But uh, so, that, you're looking at that as a really substantial problem yes. for the country. And uh, oncology uh, is a growth business. Though. And one they have to fix. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not, uh, I was at the, at, at the Olympics, and every day the sky was bluebird right. <laughs> bright <laughs> because they shut it down. Uh, they shut all the factories down, trucks didn't run. Uh, but it's, it's but that's not the way it is now. When, when it's when everything is running, just smog no. and and is it that really that bad? Yes, and and there's water. Mm -hmm. You've seen the the lakes and and the and the third is uh, as Jim Chanos correctly points out, uh, you've never had investment over fifty percent of the GDP, and not have a major contraction in the economy. So they they have capital in China. So China is now over fifty percent. China stock market more than fifty percent. No, no cap, capital spending. They've had this investment boom, mm -hmm. and so investment got over fifty percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to rebalance the economy, fight corruption, and fight environmental issues all at once. Uh, that sounds like a challenge. That's a challenge. And so you, those are some of the issues. But then you're asking, uh, you know, what? Uh, those are more uh, deep-seated issues. Uh, then you're saying, well. What could happen that would make it happen, make a negative outcome quickly? And the one that I'm most interested in right now is a uh, discontinuity in the bond market. Uh, there's a constant discussion about the reduced liquidity in the fixed income markets, mm -hmm. that dealers uh, have maybe a fifth or a tenth of the inventory of bonds they had six or seven years ago. That the really? market's very thin. Wow. And that's the liquidity crisis that people have been talking about now for months. Yes. And uh, when the German bond yield went from something like 50 basis points to 100 basis points, you know, half a percent to one percent in three days, people are going, oh, my gosh, this is this could be it. And so that's that's a risk that I watch every every morning. I check the German bond yield out to see if it's uh, starting to have a discontinuity. That, that's an important uh, factor to look at, the German bond yield spread, in order to give a sense of 
what liquidity issues there are. And, it, and influence. Yeah. But our, our bond yield trades tick for tick every day off of their bond, bond yield. Really? So, yeah. So if ours are, if theirs is up three basis points, ours will be up three basis points. So Yet if, theirs is so much lower than ours. Why is the German bonds yielding so much less than – is it strictly a, a function of the volume of U.S. bonds or how do we trade so much higher – Yield than yeah. than there's so this this gets back to a a business cycle um, observation. Mm -hmm. So bond yields uh, should in the long term be roughly equal to nominal GDP growth. Okay. So in the U.S., nominal GDP growth is probably three percent, two percent real GDP, maybe one percent inflation, mm -hmm. three, maybe four, that neighborhood. And in Europe. Uh, Real GDP has been about one, uh -huh. and inflation has been about zero. So nominal GDP growth has been about one. So we see Switzerland essentially zero. That means that their growth is also, uh, their nominal growth is about zero. Right. Same with Japan? Yes. It doesn't have to work, it, or it doesn't work, you know, on a daily or weekly, quarterly basis. But Over that, long periods but that's, of time. But that's what you're tracking toward. And so nominal GDP in Japan has been close to zero for 25 years. Right. And their bond yields have been close to zero uh, for 25 years. So basically, the, the, the spread between the German yield uh, at, say, 1% and our yields at 2.5% can be largely explained by that first uh, the, the part. The GDP difference. Yeah, the, right. our, our economy grows faster than theirs. It's a little economy. bit faster than theirs. Huh, that, that's really ama yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about books. Yeah. Right. I, I assume that you're a bit of a reader when I walked into your office. I'm a, I'm a killer reader. You, you had bookshelves. <laughs> and and uh, what what are some of your bo favorite books, both finance and non-finance related? Well, uh, almost everything I read mm -hmm. is related to what I do f for work. So I, I, I shouldn't I, feel bad about that. Oh, no. Because my wife is like, why don't you ever pick up a book? <laughs> Fiction book, because this stuff is fascinating. Yeah, this, is, really this is good. So I, I, I wrote on some books that I've enjoyed uh, recently. So there was one, uh, Coming Apart, uh, by Charles Murray. Oh, okay. And, this, and uh, so uh, this is a, a description about the way the U.S. was in the 60s mm -hmm. and the way it is today. and uh, More socially focused? How, yeah, it's a social mm -hmm. uh, commentary. And... Uh, the way the country is coming apart, and uh, I, that I spent a lot of time thinking about that. More recently, uh, Andy McAfee, who's a professor at MIT, uh -huh. has done a lot of work on robotics, and uh, he and his colleague wrote a book called *The Second Machine Age*, which okay. I spent a lot I of time with. I recall seeing that. And um, they, uh, so I spent time working with them and and thinking about, uh, and their view is that this time is different that robots are going to destroy jobs. Oh, really? And so they have a provocative uh, you know, angle. You're, you're starting it. to see it happen already in a number of different yeah. areas. Um, they're no longer a, a, a pertinent to jobs. They're now replacing jobs. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't agree with them on that. You don't? But, no. But, that's, uh, but we'll find out in the next three or four years okay. as to whether or not that's, that's happening. Um, there's a a doctor who's written two books I've loved uh, named Gawande. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> the, the Checklist, was that the most yeah. recent one? Yes. How'd you know that one? Um, 
because it's on my on my bookshelf. Yeah, uh, it's but, like number four. Yeah. in my queue, ra- waiting to be read. The the book he did before that, yes, Better Medicine, or, was really got fantastic reviews. Yeah. and um, it was one of those things that all right, I'll get around to that. But the checklist looks like it has. Well, the, his first one I think is better than the checklist. Oh, really? But they're the, both great. See, the checklist looks like it's applicable to everything. It is, and Better Medicine would look yeah. like a very specific sector yeah. discussion. But he's a great writer, and then I've I've really enjoyed a book by uh, T- by Talib. Called anti fragile. Sure, and uh, I think he's a brilliant guy. And I've, I've I haven't quite finished that one, but I've. Uh... He's he's so fooled by randomness was a really interesting read right. by him. But it's not a fast read. You have to kind of pick it up, read a couple of chapters, put right. it down, and think about <laughs> well, it. The the same thing with the Black Swan. It's yeah. it's it's not. You know, I love Michael Lewis's stuff. I could pick up a book of his and yeah. plow through it in an afternoon. Yeah, Talib not right. not really requires some digestion. Yeah, well, I think on his books, you can go either way. You can just get the gist of it, right, and move on, uh, or you can go through you know each page and each chapter, which have some real nuggets as you go through it, right. Uh, and then uh, I I do find money Moneyball. And the Big Short by Michael Lewis, to be books I think back on uh, frequently. He's M- Moneyball was one of the most interesting books I've ever read. If yeah. you like Michael Lewis, I'm going to tell you a book I I read that I don't think a lot of people read, and one that I'm waiting to read. Yeah. So I have so Moneyball was about football, was about baseball, right? But he did a football book called The Blind Side. Read that too. <laughs> I have not read that. Oh, it's great. in my queue, yeah. waiting to be read. Not as not as good as, as Moneyball. Well, money, not as quantitative. Not as applicable to every aspect of life. Right. So in in uh, our business at Evercore ISI, uh, you see many many examples of where you can apply Moneyball. Right. Uh, I, I, that's what made it so fascinating. Yeah. It was so universal. The other book of his. So I've read everything of his, yeah. except The Blind Side. The book of his that I really liked, that I don't know a lot of people have read, was the book called The New New Thing. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's read, you know, Liar's Poker. Everybody's read The Big Short. I really enjoyed Flash Boys. I thought Flash Boys was, despite the criticism, despite the pushback, I thought that was really interesting. But The New New Thing was one of his books that sort of slipped in under the radar. And it's also really fascinating. Right. So all these things, uh, you know, the world is changing uh, very rapidly. I'm not sure we uh, we discuss it enough or think about it, but say in the area of economics, uh, it's it's just changing because there's so much more data now, all mm-hmm. the time for people to study, and say like in investments, uh, there are many many more people doing investments now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes it more difficult. Uh, Chano said that there are um, there are ten thousand hedge funds today. Back when he started, there were one hundred and fifty hedge funds. Right. But all the alpha is still being created by those same one hundred and fifty hedge funds. Right. I I don't know how true that is, but it it certainly means that there's more competition for employees. There's more competition for capital. There's more competition for for everything. Yeah. And and it's, it's still more difficult when you have that many more people playing. To, uh, and, I, and, I would I would imagine at yeah. the very least it's 
the challenges of managing that yeah. have to be increasing. Right. So let's let's keep plowing through. Any other books on the list? Any classic books that you? Uh, um, so everything you've mentioned is relatively new. Yeah. A- any of the old classics really? Uh, well, I, you know, I liked I liked uh, I liked the stuff that John Maynard Keynes has mm-hmm. written, and I find him as an economist, I find him very fascinating because Absolutely. because he operated in so many different spheres. You know, he was an accomplished investor. Very successful investor. People don't realize how good of an investor he yeah. was. And obviously, you know, uh, a complete thought leader in his field mm-hmm. uh, and had a big political role in life. Mm-hmm. I, mean, he was, I should really get him on the show. Yeah. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, good luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? I'm embarrassed to admit I've never read. It's literally on my night table. It's the next book in my queue yeah. is Where Are the Customer's Yachts? That's been something that... Yeah. I've been waiting to read for forever, yeah. and I find once I finish the, I'm yeah. reading uh, Thaler's Misbehaving, the yeah. founding of behavioral economics. Once I'm done with that, yeah. customers' yachts are are next. What what else do you have queued up to read? What else are you looking forward to reading? Uh, I'm looking forward to finishing uh, Anti Fragile, right? And, and the same with the, the check checklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, but, so you all you read multiple books at a time. Yes, that's I mean, one of my worst habits because yeah, I end I, up with I've like, like ten different. Yeah, I have about ten ten books I'm <laughs> working on, but uh, there's a book uh, if you haven't read it called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Edward Lafarve. Yeah. Yes, on on the uh, I read that many yeah, years yeah. ago. Fascinating. It's it's as good today if you pick it up and read a couple of pages. So there's a new there's a new book that's a um, a bio of. Um, Jesse Livermore. Jesse Livermore called um, the Boy Plunger, uh-huh. and it's it's basically a it's not written with the same sort of style yeah. that that Reminiscence was, but it that just arrived in the mail the other day. I don't know when I'll get to that, but I read Reminiscences a while ago and just thought it was really that I started on a trading desk. That might have been one of the first five books I read. Yeah, good for you. The, um, Market Wizards was the first book. Yeah, the head head trader said here go read this yeah. that that was my training here yeah. t- take a look at this yeah. so any anything else that you have teed up that you want to uh you no. want to read anytime soon <laughs> no, i just read constantly so, uh, that is not um that is not such a rare thing no it's not amongst people who are regarded as excellent investors excellent strategists excellent economists you read what charlie munger and warren buffett say they say they spend eighty percent of their time reading. Right. That that's just amazing yeah. to think about. And you, the, you, you're so used to people with technology and Twitter and everything else being so hyperactive. For four out of five hours during the day, these guys are sitting around reading books. Yeah. It, it's amazing. So uh, I read the Jeff Bezos book. Um, that came out uh, a, couple a couple of years, years ago. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, which is great, a great read. Oh, really? And in the end, it had a page on the books that he had read. And they're all this, these books, like uh-huh. Good to Great and et cetera. Well, uh, are they all business books or all, is there all, an eclectic? All business book. uh, no, these are all business books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Munger also has about a 40-page speech he gave right. uh, on behavioral psychology and the way it plays uh, into the market. I've seen that which somewhere. Is, uh, it's it's really excellent. The 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 speech may actually be on YouTube. I'm going to have yeah, to dig yeah, that up. Yeah. 
Another book sitting on my bookshelf, not even on the night table, is Poor Charlie's Almanac that I'm waiting to pass through. I haven't got through. to that one. It's this thick, <laughs> and it's basically a collection of a lot of his thoughts, a lot of his speeches, yeah. and it's one of these things that you could get lost in for three months. So yeah. it's it's waiting. I just haven't. Maybe that's a winter project this yeah. year. So let me keep working through some of my favorite um, questions. You, you mentioned how uh, the pace of change is accelerating. Everything is happening. More data, faster. What what other major shifts do you see coming up for research and and economics? So I thought about that, and I I don't I thought about the question. Nothing comes to mind. It just seems as though it uh, slowly is getting faster and faster uh, as electronic information becomes more and more uh, available and consumable uh, by people. Oddly enough. Uh, trading volumes have gotten slower and slower. Right. Uh, so there's more news, but uh, in the in the equity markets, it's it's gotten people have been trading less. What what explains that? That's really an interesting the the first correlation. Is, first is muscle memory. You know, people, mm-hmm. and second, uh, active management uh, has been doing poorly, mm-hmm. and so people haven't been winning by making moves. So they do yeah, less. They do less, and uh, and then money's been flowing from active to passive, which generates less trading in that space. Vanguard ETFs. Just, Vanguard just passed three trillion. Right so, that, that's yeah. that's an amazing number. Right, and and, uh, and they're two thirds passive. So that's just a tremendous, tremendous, hard right. to fathom number. Yeah, and so uh, it really is a staggering uh, development. The uh, trading volume was ten billion shares a day mm-hmm. uh, five years ago, and now it's six billion. You, you started mentioning ETFs. Does that have an impact yeah, on this so as well? Yeah, you know, that's a less, less, less trading. So, so you could, one transaction, you're buying the whole S&P 500. You don't need to, to Buy the purchase individual the individual stocks, and the odds are you're going to sit with that over time and not jump yeah, in and yeah, out. Yeah. So that, you know, I, don't, I don't know whether that's a permanent condition or, uh, and we've gone through it's been stable now for about two, three years. What does that mean in terms of money flowing to research dollars? Because it it's used tough. to be, used to be research was paid for with trading commissions. That's they still. That's exactly our business. Trading so hundred percent. So how do you structure that? Do you is there a minimum amount? Is it hard dollar or is it all soft dollar commissions? So, it's it's not all soft dollar commissions, but it's virtually all soft dollar mm-hmm. commissions. Uh, and so it just made it a much more difficult uh, environment for everybody in the business. So that turn it into a little bit of a winner-take-all? You have a handful of firms. If the volume is dropping that much, but there's X amount of research people are looking to buy, that means that any firm that's on the fringe or on the edge is not going to capture those, those trading dollars. Uh, it hasn't quite worked out that way. Okay. Because you have uh, – so we were on the edge – and we were doing fine mm-hmm. uh, because we were taking commissions from the the guys in the middle. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're we're not in the middle, but we're in Closer. the inner circle. Right. Uh, but we're still you know gaining market share. But it, it's a very difficult business. But it's uniform across the industry, so it's not like you know it's sunny in some spaces and raining in others. It's just it's, it's just, tough. Everywhere. It's tough everywhere. 
to uh, so it doesn't it doesn't put us at a competitive disadvantage or advantage either i don't think so you said something interesting earlier i want to come back and revisit you said much of the industry has not changed since the 1970s you you alluded yeah. to that yeah. how is that possible given technology and given well, everything that's all that's changed? all that's changed but the the basic players mm-hmm. uh or you have people in my space, you have people doing research, and they interface with investors uh, at, the inst- at the big institutional accounts. Mm-hmm. That is pretty similar to what it was, except there are more investors. Uh, there's also, a, uh, keep in mind, there's a ton of money that didn't exist in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So there's, although the, uh, the volumes are down, uh, there's still a lot of trading going on, uh, but there, that basic interface uh, is pretty much the same as it as it was. The industry started to grow as pools of money began to accumulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, say when you say pools, you mean big pension funds, foundations, that sort of stuff, or just assets the size of the stock exchanges, the size of the equity markets well, in the U.S. So the size of those are feeding off of what you mentioned first. The pension funds, mutual funds that you mentioned, mm-hmm. like Vanguard, and so uh, as those uh, monies came together, uh, it really gave birth to institutional research, and starting pretty much with Donaldson, Lufkin, and Ginrat in the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, how, how did that? How did that have such an impact on on the world of research? Well, as the, as pools of money developed, you had. Uh, professional investors now able to shepherd mm-hmm. that money. So you had research people at Citibank, uh, and so they started to need some research from the street, and uh, the whole dance began. And it's pretty much the same today. It's just gotten bigger. Huh, fascinating. Um, so the next question was, is this a good or a bad thing? But you're really saying it's neither. It's just yeah. the size is increasing. The, the, and- the, the, main, the main problem is that active management uh, has not done well for, I, I don't know how many years, but... Why do you think that is? Because there's so many players, it's very difficult it, to... It's, um, Charlie Ellis said uh, that when you have this many smart, competitive people out there, and he was the chairman of the Yale uh, Endowment for a long time, um, and a board member of Vanguard, when there's so many really smart people out there, they all just end up canceling each other out and that's how you have a period where nobody's generating alpha because everybody is trying to and it's just you know it's like stepping out to the field with the New York Giants you're you're not it's very difficult. well out there yeah. and so that's uh, we'll see how that plays out uh, usually that's somewhat cyclical though it I, goes right positive and, and so and, we'll see there has been one aspect that's not been discussed much is that uh, uh, People have been uh, more successful doing asset allocation, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't show up in generating alpha or not. You're always looking at a portfolio of stocks and are you outperforming the S&P, right. something like that. But in terms of, you know, can you put together uh, a, a portfolio of, uh, you know, private equity and equities and bonds, uh, real estate that outperforms? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there have been a number of people that have done a, an excellent job of that. Any anyone in particular you want to mention, or is it just uh, 
Just no. the, the <laughs> just the shift. I, I mean, I you have to look at Vanguard as a beneficiary of that. They've been a huge beneficiary, right? Because if you want an instant low cost exposure to a region, a sector, or this or that, that yeah. they offer enough funds, and at eleven basis points and things like that, you get exposure to any of those things instantaneously. It's really yeah. it's really quite amazing. Um, what what are some of your favorite myths on Wall Street that refuse I thought, to die? I, I looked at that one, Barry. I, I don't I don't see any myths that refuse to no die. No myths. See, and, I, I, see I, I thought about it. The Super Bowl indicator, any of that stuff. Oh no, I, or those, you don't. That, you just don't pay attention yeah, to any of that. Uh, um, so, last two questions. Let me ask you: to a millennial or someone just coming out of college now, what sort of career advice would you give them if they were interested in in finance or investing? So, um, so first, I would say, go fast. What, what does that mean? Go fast. Just whatever you want to do, do, do it. it. You know, try and. Uh, it's hard to know what to do, mm-hmm. uh, and there are good arguments that you should, you know, take your time. You're going to live a long time compared to the way people lived a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's truth in that, but. I think you should still try and go fast. Let's say you go fast by reading a lot of books all of a sudden. Right. But as I can tell you are, you're going fast at reading. And so whatever you do, go at it uh, would be one idea that comes to my, my mind. This way you could discover if you like it or you don't like it, yeah. you move on to the next. What, what's the thinking behind go fast? Just go fast so you, you get as much – you have a good time and get as much experience as possible. Uh-huh. Um, the, maybe go fast is to you know go and live in Thailand for five five years, just but to see what it's like. But you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's experience. So you are what you real. What I'm really hearing from you is, be decisive, do something. Just don't sit around and wait for the world to come to you. Right. Okay. That, the uh, the things that I when I look at the people that do well in this business, uh, the first one that comes up is is the most trite, which is is work hard. And everybody that I see that succeeds, they simply outwork other players. Mm-hmm. I think Michael Bloomberg is a great example of that, where he's, he's just full of life and is an incredible worker. Well, let's see if we can get him on the show. Right. I keep asking. He keeps turning me down. Right. Um, work hard, clearly. Go fast. The, the go, go fast is sort of a general condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work hard. Uh, and then I think you have to be competitive. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, whatever, different people are competitive in different ways. Some are overtly competitive and some are quietly competitive. But that whatever that instinct is to win uh, in this business is definitely necessary in the investment business. And it's mm-hmm. frankly true in most businesses I take a look at. Uh, and then the third one I think is critical is to be flexible, mm-hmm. to say, this isn't working. Try something I'm else. going fast, <laughs> not the right direction. And particularly for fund managers, those three characteristics are the ones that I find every time. They're very competitive, hardworking, and they're oddly flexible. You know, when they have a bad idea, they're able to, to get rid of it. Move, move it. In my office, we call that a... Uh, 
strong opinions, weekly health. <laughs> so that you can really have a, a strong belief in it, but as yeah. soon as you see proof you're wrong, <laughs> right. you gotta. It's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. Is what I learned on a trading desk. I heard yeah. that early on, but that's the same concept. Yeah. Is is yeah. is to be flexible. And now we're up to our last question. What do you wish you knew about investing today? Oh God, give me that, another question. You, what do you wish when when you began? Yeah. I'll rephrase it then. When you began, what do you know today you wish you knew when you started out? So, man, I, Barry, I got your list of questions. I looked at that one, and it just has me stumped. I thought about it coming over here, and nothing just wells up. That, uh, that, that there, there's something that you figured out today that would have been of assistance right out of school. Nothing came to mind. You know, someone yeah. said, gave me an answer to that once, and the answer what was- What have you gotten? The, the pat, see, for me- so the answer that I found intriguing was, gee, what I know today, I had to take a certain path to learn. And if I knew that when I started, well, then where's the path? Where's yeah. the, the accumulation of wisdom that the journey is itself the, the value? Sort of a, a, a Zen philosophy. I don't remember who yeah. answered it that way, but um, I, I found that sort of, maybe it was Bobby Flay. Yeah. I thought it was kind of an intriguing... Oh, okay. That's very philosophical. So way I've to been, look at you know, it. I'm. Uh, I view life as a as a journey, not a destination, as they put it. And and I have I've been uh, extremely lucky in that my journey has been pretty much in a straight line, mm -hmm. uh, as we've talked about today. So I don't, there's nothing, there's no. <laughs> so the journey was, uh, that. that's a similar yeah. answer to what somebody else said, which yeah. was the journey was what they learned. And there's, you have to kind of live it. You can't go back to square one with, okay, here's I, everything I've learned. I would have done it differently. Right. It's, it's, yeah. you, had to, you had to take that process to get where you, you couldn't be here today if you didn't take that route. Right. So, Ed, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and spending My pleasure. so much time with us. I, I really, for, for listeners, you should realize Ed doesn't do a lot of media. And I really kind of hunted you down for, uh, for a while trying to cajole you into doing this. And I really appreciate it. Thank so, you. Th thank you. Um, you've been listening to Masters in, in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you want to hear more conversations like this, just look up or down an inch or so on your um, iTunes or Bloomberg.com. Um, I want to thank uh, Charlie Vollmer, our producer, and Matt, our engineer, and Mike Batnick, the head of research who helps us put together all these questions. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg View and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.